Hello. Welcome to Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for every year of the 20th century. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine Nichols. And today we're going to talk about the first 10 books that we've talked about already on Lit Century and, and how they fit into broader conceptions of the 20th century and literature. So we've done 10 whole books. Do you want yes. um, to tell us the names of the 10 books that we have okay. talked about now? I will tell you the names of the 10 books. Nightwood by Gina Barnes. Passing by Nella Larson. Cheaper by the Dozen by Frank and Ernestine Gilbreth. Frog and Toad Are Friends by Arnold Lobel. Kristen Lavin's Daughter by Sigrid Unset. Ariel, Sylvia Platt. Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. And finally, the play The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. Um, so when you think back on this group of books, um, what stands out to you? Like, what do you think about now that you have a little distance from all of the episodes and all the things that we, we talked about? Well, um, like one thing that that I think became a theme with a, a lot of these books is the difference between what is normal and what is transgressive. Like I think that's that's a lot of what we ended up talking about with a lot of with these books. It's like it seems to be like a theme that was very important in the twentieth century of trying to be transgressive and change what is normal. But then also the fetishization of what is normal in, in books like Cheaper by the Dozen, that, which is already nostalgia. Like it's always nostalgia. Like nothing is normal anymore is, seems to be the general sentiment. And some people are leaning into that. And some people are saying, no, no, we really we want to live in a big house and have 12 children and all pretend that daddy is a, is a hero. That is so interesting because when I thought about how I was going to talk about, you know, what I learned about uh, the 20th century at 20th century camp um, was about the, the idea of normal, that they are all in conversation with that idea of normal. Um, oh, yeah. I think this means I was right. Right. <laughs> if we both agree, then we have to be right. Um, I, yeah. Whichever person says the thing that we both agree to first that person is right. <laughs> that person is the most right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're the most right. And I'm actually, I'm going to take it a step farther and say that what you said even expanded my thinking on the thing I was thinking. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm so right. I'm having like a right gasm right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, 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 but so what were you, you going to say? No, I was going to tell you the layers. Like step one is mm -hmm. wherever they are in relation to normal, the people's lives, wherever they are in relation to normal, everyone agrees that there is such a thing as normal and that it's transgressive to <laughs> yes. not be that. And most of the books, I would say, are on some level arguing that their particular form of transgression should not be punished as harshly as it is. Yeah, and, and in really different ways, too. I, I mean, I'm sure, I guess, I think 
Blues for Mr. Charlie might be a bit of an exception to this. Um, I think we, we'll get back to this because I think the steamy slash clammy divide is part of yes. this. Like we talked about that, about whether sex in Blues for Mr. Charlie is steamy or clammy or both at once. And that is definitely a theme of the 20th century is sex that is both steamy and clammy and arguing that clammy sex is steamy <laughs> while letting it still be clammy. <laughs> like it's, it's just all about that. Yeah, I think we're going to have to, I mean, I, I think that we're going to talk in vague terms probably before we talk in very specific <laughs> terms, but I, I agree with you that um, the blues from Mr. Charlie stands out as not necessarily, it's not necessarily in the same conversation as the rest of these books. I I think a lot of them are, are either describing themselves as sort of close to normal, but like hilariously not quite, like cheaper by the dozen, or they're talking about themselves mm-hmm. as wistfully viewing normal from a distance, like I'd say frog and toad probably. Um, uh, or they are saying normal is an oppressive uh, blanket that's smothering me. Like, um, I would say Haunting of Hill House is that. Um, and then mm-hmm. you could say, like, that uh, Nightwood, Juna Barnes, it's like, oh, I read a magazine about normal once. Um, it bored me to tears, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the daytime, which I have never seen because I'm actually exactly, a spiritual yes. vampire. Um, but I think the thing you said actually expands that point, which is um, that they also it's like they both do and don't believe in 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 this theoretically normal and punitive body of culture. Like it's something that's happening not just somewhere else geographically or socially. It's actually happening somewhere else in time, also. Yeah, I mean, you could think about like the Kristen Lavern's daughter, which which is the one that is least obviously about that, still like situates goodness and normality in the parents' ger- generation. And then, like this is a classic 20th century move, deconstructs that and says, oh, actually our parents didn't have the normality that we thought they had. There's something really perverse going on with them too, but we only see that now. So it's sort of like now there was something perverse going on with them. But of course, when I was growing up, there wasn't. Yeah. And the Christian Lavern's daughter is also talking about a time when um, two, it was like a, a time of, of big upheaval in the culture where um, the pagan religion was sort of um, going underground and the Catholic religion was um, kind of their public life. And that sense that there are two layers of culture and two layers of meaning to what they're doing and why um, that also feels like it's a relationship to the idea of normal. Like, is it pagan normal? Is it Catholic normal? And which one is acceptable? Which, which God do you actually pray to if your child is in danger? Um, and that is something that's um, very embattled mm-hmm. in, in Christian Labyrinth's daughter in a way that feels 20th century. Yes. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, there's, it's sort of interesting, like, I think this is probably a conversation for a later episode, but the things that are written as historical fiction, as opposed to the things that are written as contemporary fiction. So, like, we, we don't have enough books to really do this yet, but 
Kristen Lovren's daughter, the fact that it was written as historical fiction and was successful as historical fiction, I think is significant. It's like framing these problems within a nostalgic um, narrative is is a really different move and makes it possible to say things that are, I, I think, more um, controversial without them feeling controversial. And I think that trying to take it as its most controversial possible self for the time that it was written in the early 1920s, um, like what is unsayable in the contemporary time that she could only say if she said it in the past. And I think that the thing that she could only say there is that she believes essentially that subjugation of women has some kind of spiritual benefit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, and it's something like she, a lot of times writers say things in novels that they can't even say to themselves. So I want to move on to another no, topic please. if I can. So this is something that we didn't actually talk about, even though it was kind of nagging at us as a subject in the, in the first, like I think four pod, podcasts that we kept running into the, topic of gay people being sad until it got quite uncomfortable. Like we just ran into it. We didn't plan it, but somehow we were always talking about gay people being sad until we were like, can gay people be happy yes. for a change, please? And and I think that's a very, like it's so 20th century, like, like so much, a lot of the 21st century in talking about gay representation in art has been let the gay people have a moment of happiness. Um, but in the 20th century, that was not even an idea. Of course, the gay people were sad. Um, well, and we could connect this also to Blues from Mr. Charlie and say, uh, let the black people be angry. It's, like, it's not quite angry. It's like, let the black people be happy, be vindicated, be uh, be the winners. I. I think that obviously in the U.S., the history of pers- of just showing black people being happy is a lot more embattled than the history of showing gay people being happy. Um, so, well, that, yeah, there's a, there's such a problem with with this. It's, there's a huge problem, and a, and and a lot of it is like that. It's the kind of literature about black people that white people read and therefore that ends up in the canon too. So there's that issue. Like white people are seemingly like I hope we're getting past this, but white people are seemingly only willing to read about black people, and it's really about them, and therefore about racism. It, yeah, and that I think that it's part of what makes the play Blues for Mister Charlie so uncomfortable. And I yeah yeah I think about how uncomfortable I was when I read it, and then how uncomfortable I was while I was recording the episode about it, and then I think that that was only the thin end of the wedge, and I only get. <laughs> more just feeling like it just is itching my brain it's um it it's like now now i'm imagining you like like you you no longer wear clothes that have a shape you like live under your bed you maybe these <laughs> things are way too close to accurate <laughs> um, I'm not. oh my god i can't believe i had that experience <laughs> But it's true. It is creepy. Like talking about clammy, it isn't clammy. It's it's like you said. It's like you have this like unpleasant itch. Yeah. 
where even even if we just set aside the stuff about it that initially made me really uncomfortable, um, just thinking about it as sort of um, live tweeting James Baldwin's radicalization. Um, mm. Like if he goes from thinking, okay, maybe there is something in nonviolent protest and then thinking maybe there really isn't, maybe it actually has to be something more extreme than that. And I, and I also think there's something about the play, like we're talking about the discomfort that it gives you. And I'm not sure if we got to this in the podcast that we did about it, but centering the white character is a lot of what we're talking about. The centering of this white character who is like Mr. Clammy. Just so icky, awful. So icky. And he's obviously like a version of the Atticus character in, in To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. He is that character. Um, I don't know. I wrote a thing about, about Atticus Finch and I actually think Atticus Finch is probably worse. And I, um, you know, I wrote a, but at least we didn't have to hear about his sex life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. That's, that's true. Um, but I think that his, his paternalism was actually worse. And accepted as good, of course, which is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that his comfort, his Atticus Finch's comfort with himself is greater and therefore his badness is greater. But this is like cracking it open just enough that you can see all of the worms inside. And then yeah, like at a certain point, like it's like he opens the curtain and you realize, oh my God, it's a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. I um, if you're if you're a white person, I mean obviously it's <laughs> I don't know. And I think that there are definitely things about this play that Americans of any color should be talking about. And it's not even that I feel personally attacked by his vision of whiteness. Definitely. It's that there really isn't. So just, you know, to go back to our earlier framework, (laughs) there isn't a, there isn't a vision of normal or a vision of success against normal in that play. Yeah. For any of the characters. Yeah, nobody in that play can be happy ever. Exactly. So it's not it's like it's not like Frog and Toad where it's like, oh, if you could imagine this other world in which there's no such thing as um homophobia and there's also no money and you still have to worry about getting fat, but otherwise you're kind of fine and everything's fine. That that wistfulness, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have Juna Barnes sense that there's the daytime, which sucks, but then there's also the nighttime, which is interesting and also sucks, but is interesting. Um, that there's no place to rest inside that play. And there's, there's also like in Nightwood, especially there's, there's so much beauty in her world. It's like a world that's beautiful and tragic and hilarious. And the world of blues for Mr. Charlie is none of these things. Yeah. That, that the end is just, that there's actually nothing to be done except take up weapons that in a war that you know, you're never going to win and there will never be peace. And it just like, I don't, and I don't think he's wrong. Success. It's just not yeah. And success is just determinist. Oh, if only we could have actually just married and had a child. That's like, it's really like defining it down to survival. Like, could you just let us survive? Yeah, and and there's 
there's wistfulness, I guess, in the way that, um, oh, here's something for our podcast listeners. After we recorded the episode where I said, I think there's a problem with how they would cast the baby in this play, because you either have a real life baby or it's going to look terrible. And Isaac said something like, oh, no, stage people know how to deal with this. They just wrap a loaf of bread or something like that. Um, Sandy found a clip of this play being performed with one of these false babies, and it does look terrible. <laughs> it really does look terrible. <laughs> the loaf of bread is not okay. And like, at least use a puppet and have let your hand move inside the, the loaf of bread. Yeah, matter. there's so many scenes in which the white parents, the, you know, murderous, racist white parents are are connecting with the idea that they'll have children and, you know, generations, etc., um, but the baby is very obviously an object and not a child, um, because it's a little bit. It is like all these things that we're saying about Blues for Mr. Charlie. I think, I think like for me, these are reasons that the play is good. So oh, it might yes. sound like oh. we're saying the play is bad, but actually like it's the power of the play. It really sticks with you and gets into your head. Yes. I, I completely agree. Cause when I first encountered the idea that it was, a version of like an Emmett Till murder where the character is actually a quite aggressive grown-up man instead of a little boy. Mm-hmm. I I felt my very first wave of discomfort, let's just say. Um, but <laughs> I agree with you that um, everything I'm saying is is about the play being actually really good. In just in a okay, different way we- than this thing. I think that we should probably move on because we're just talking about Blues for Mr. Charlie. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Otherwise, I thought that a lot of our books had an idea of an idea of normal that was that they were like primarily in conversation with that I it feels historical to me now to see books about people thinking about where normal life is happening and thinking it's happening somewhere else or it's happening in the recent past or it's happening um, just over there in some way. Um, Like if it's uh, flowers in the attic, it's happening. If you could just get on the train, if you could just leave this house, then you could go and live normal life. I don't, I don't know that people in the 20th, 21st century internet era, I don't know that we have that idea that we're always in conversation with a monoculture. Maybe we do. No, I think if, if anything, we we're in denial about how much the unspoken monoculture defines what we do, but, but that's a, an issue for a different time. But yeah, we definitely don't. I don't think we have that dichotomy of, of normal and not normal. And certainly we don't define not normal in the same ways at all. Yeah, you know, when I was editing um, the designated mourner episode, I was thinking, uh, I'm not sure that I made the point I thought I was making at all. Um, But I'm going to have another stab at it now in this context, and say that by the 90s, I think the idea that there was such a thing as normal, but it would not be desirable to be in that group, because all of the cool people who are doing things and who are um, worth spending time with are in Juna Barnes's night world. Um, 
I mean, it's it's really just wholesale adopting um, Juna Barnes's sort of worldview, but that you you might believe that you are part of this counterculture. Other, you might want to believe that you might describe yourself to yourself as being an outsider, even if you are very much not. Absolutely. I was, in fact, I was going to make the same point. So now oh, you are the one good. who's right. You're 100% right. Yay. Yes. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I was, I was just like looking at my list of the books that we'd done and thinking, yeah, and by the time of the designated murder, I think, I think it becomes increasingly that way. Like at about the time of Ariel, 1965, we're already seeing like people defining themselves as special because they are, um, well, I guess mentally ill in terms of Ariel. It's it's sort of like she's she's always like comparing her pain to things like the Holocaust and there is this this feeling that there's something that you wanna be um, a pain feeler. You don't wanna be one of the people inflicting pain. Yeah. And you have to be one category or the other. Yeah. Or yes. one of the people who's oblivious to you you are you're a higher being because you see the pain and you experience the pain and you're capable of having holocaust sized feelings about hmm. going on, on a ride on your horse which seems <laughs> seems particularly but but you know it's like that that extreme sensitivity and the ability to understand the tragedy of death in every moment of life is definitely part of what's happening in Ariel and and then by the time of 1996, when we get the designated mourner, that's just assumed. And the class of people who, who are the special perception and pain havers are seen as like as automatically highbrow and better than you. Yeah, and rich, which is another thing that, um, that mm-hmm. it's, it's an aesthetic and it's beautiful and it's desirable and therefore it's something that should be like, you should be allowed to buy it. It's very interesting. Like the, the way that money is handled in, in the books in the latter half of the 20th century that we looked at um, designated mourner. I mean, well, Sean obviously never wanted for money and it's never mentioned where those characters get their money from. Well, I think that the, so Howard's father was supposed to be like a general, I think. I think he was like somewhere high up in the previous Mm -hmm. government that they're using a version of um, how much different jobs get paid that has professors getting paid a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where at least there's a possibility that you could be, uh, an unstressed, well-paid person um, in some of those roles that now seem a little more embattled. It's just really interesting when you compare it to the like, flowers in the attic and the hunting of Hill House, where really like these kind of class differences and money differences are at the root of everything that happens. And consciously so. Like it's foregrounded. These These are characters who are excluded from that status of being special in terms of the, the majority culture. Um, like excluded in every way. And in uh, Flowers in the Attic, I think that the escape hatch to that exclusion is the idea that, that they're beautiful 
um, because being beautiful would be a way that you can then uh, be value, valued again. Like you'd be allowed back in society if you're pretty enough, um, even if you're otherwise excluded. And I think that that's also um, Eleanor in Haunting of Hell House. I think that's also her plan that if people were attracted to her, she would have a home after Hill House. And it's because people are not that she doesn't. Yes. And it's interesting in The Haunting of Hill House, we see Eleanor tried to be accepted by Theo. I mean, this is really like a very interesting kind of complicated treatment of this idea of transgression versus normality. Like Theo, who is the lesbian character, and Eleanor, who isn't even like far enough along in life in in being accepted by the world to consider the question of whether she might be attracted to a woman. Um, like she, she would definitely be attracted to Theo if Theo would let her, but, but maybe what she wants isn't even something that can be asked. <laughs> like whatever she wants, the answer will be no. So that was our first roundup episode. Um, thanks, as always, to LitHub for hosting us and to Adam Bear for our theme music. And if you want to talk to us, ask us any questions, you can reach us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod or via email at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>